Well, it's great to be with you again. Um, yeah, it's been quite a month. Um, been really busy with our uh, discipleship school, so it's been a bit of a sprint over these last few weeks. But it's, I'm excited to to be with you again today. I'm really excited about the fact that I might be able to be with you in person this next time around uh, in a month from now. So, um, all that said, let's let's get into the Lord's Word this morning. I'm going to read from First Corinthians chapter nine. And I am going to begin in verse 19 and read through 23. The Apostle Paul writes this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you promised to speak to us through your word, by your spirit. And I pray for your help, for clarity, um, for passion for your word for each of us, and, and I, I pray that, Lord, you would, you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's see. I've been, I've been in this particular passage for a while now, thinking about it, uh, reflecting on it. Um, it's a passage in which Paul is explaining to the Corinthians his approach to proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And I think if we could sum it up, all that he's saying here in a single sentence, something like, in order to win the lost, I need to become like the lost. And, and the, the burning, ongoing question is, what does he mean by that? Uh, we're, we're, we have a couple of different things to consider there. On the one hand, yes, we are called to go out into the world to preach the good news of Jesus, to shine his lights in the world, that sort of thing. I think we all understand that. We feel that, that pull and that, that sense of obligation as Christians. But on the other hand, we're also called to be separate from the world to be holy. And and the question then is how far can we go or should we go without violating the Lord's command to be separate and unstained by the world? Part of my reflections is just going back about 20 years um, to the early and exciting days of church planting, just getting into it. And this was a particularly exciting passage. We talked about this a lot. And this is the beginning of the of the conversation would usually begin along the lines of this is what missionaries do. They learn the local language, the culture, the customs, and so forth in order to become comprehensible to them, uh, to remove any barriers or misunderstandings. So this is great. We get to be missionaries in our own hometown. Um, however, in practice, it tended to mean something more along the lines of now we get to get tattoos or piercings. We get to watch the latest movies and TV shows and listen to the latest music. And we can drink and we can smoke. We can even swear because that's what connects us to the people that we're trying to reach. Which, I mean, if you grant some of that, in, at face value, it tended to look a lot more like a bunch of guys who wanted to look cool by worldly standards than by actually being missionaries. Um, there's another aspect to this passage, though, that, that strikes me. Um, and that's that connection that Paul is making between the work of evangelism and what I think we could call technique, 
become all things to all people. And I think it puts its finger on a particular struggle that I encounter with a lot of Christians. Um, and that is that evangelism, yes, I'm on board, but I don't know what to do. It's so complicated. How do I speak to these people? What answers do I give? What if I don't know all the arguments? What if I say something wrong and somehow mislead them? And so oftentimes I, I encounter Christians who desperately want to share Christ with other people, who desperately want to reach their neighbors or their family for the Lord, but they're, they're hamstrung because they're thinking in terms of technique and arguments and methods, and they just feel overwhelmed. That's for the specially called. That's for the specially gifted. And that's just not me. The, the on-ramp to that sort of proficiency is just too high. So we'll trust the pastor. We'll trust the evangelist. We'll trust that, that special group of apologists that occupy that one corner of the sanctuary every Sunday and talk about apologetics kind of stuff. But that's not me. And so this, this passage can be so, sort, become sort of an uncomfortable place for many Christians to visit because of those kinds of ditches that we, we can fall into. Um, and I was part of that. I, I think I would include myself in that number. But what's, what's caused me to look at this passage again uh, was a story that I've, I've heard a while back, and then we were, we were looking at it again as part of, our, part of the, um, our study at our discipleship school. And it was centered around this talk that was given, a TED talk that was given by a man named Daryl Davis. Uh, Daryl is spelled D-A-R-Y-L. And I really encourage you to look him up. Daryl Davis, who gave his TED talk, has done a number of talks, but the TED talk I'm thinking of in particular was titled, Why I, as a Black Man, Attend KKK Rallies. Just one of those great icebreaker titles to throw into a group. Um, but it's, it's a story of a guy, an R&B musician from Maryland, um, who's been wrestling all his life with, with this question of how can someone hate me if they don't even know me? He has a, he has a pretty interesting perspective on this. He was raised, uh, his parents were both diplomats, foreign diplomats. So he moved around the country and around the globe quite a bit. Um, didn't, didn't really have a, a context for racism until he came back to the states and was part of a scout troop and in massachusetts they were part of a uh, a parade that went through the city they came across came to this one part of the the parade route and people along the side started throwing stuff at him the den mothers all gathered around and his conclusion was not having that context his conclusion was they must not like the scouts it was until later that he realized no it had everything to do, nothing to do with the scouts and everything to do with the color of his skin. And again, I think his, because of his experience, his family's background in, in travel, um, his conclusion was less bitterness and, and anger and hatred and, and more along the lines of conclusion. Well, this is just this, this whole idea of racism and white supremacy and all that stuff to me is just like another culture, which led him to be curious about this. Like how can someone, hate somebody else because of the color of their skin. Um, out of this came the idea for a book. And, and in the process of writing the book, he's decided I'm going to go out and seek these guys and try to get to know them and ask them this question. Um, I'm going to come back to how he approached this later because it, it's important to talk about, but it's the story that really got me thinking about this passage again. But before we get there, so it's a good teaser. Uh, that's a teaser for you. Um, I want to get first into this passage itself and talk about what, what Paul's saying here. I'm not going to get too in-depth with all the details. There's a lot of stuff I'm going to pass over, but I want to 
get some of the high level themes here that, that this passage has for us. So first, I want, to, I want to consider Paul's motivation here and what he's writing. Paul had a strong desire, and we see that throughout his writing, strong desire to see people come to Christ. Uh, Romans 9 is just, and they capture this so well when he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Of course, he's talking to his fellow Jews, but you you can hear it, can't you? You can hear it in his writing that he has no rest knowing that his brothers and sisters who are apart from the Lord remain in that state right now. And how, how willing he would be to give himself in their place for their sake. It's a unique passion that he has that if we are afraid or have a wrong understanding of our calling as evangelists, or we, if we have any questions about the potency of the gospel that we proclaim, it's easy not to have that, isn't it? To, to not think of it in those terms, to not, you know, forget having the willingness to do what Paul's suggesting here, but even to, to be mindful of the state of the souls of our neighbors around us. So Paul challenges me in that way. We, he also tells us in 2 Corinthians, and in another place, the motivations behind this passion, this desire of his. Um, Two of these come out of 2 Corinthians 5. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, he says, first of all, that he was motivated by the fear of the Lord. I think in both both of what I'm going to tell you here from 2 Corinthians, I think there's two aspects to this. I don't think crowd out the other, but I think both could be very complementary to each other. I think what he means by the fear of the Lord is, is this. First of all, that as an apostle, he has been commissioned to preach the word, which meant that he was also accountable to God for how he carried that out. Woe be unto me if I do not preach the word. That sense of accountability and responsibility. I have a job to do. I need to do this. That kind of fear certainly compelled Paul. But I, I think it's also very possible, even likely, that Paul was also thinking of what the wrath of God would mean for the unbeliever. Isn't that what we see in, the, in Gethsemane as Jesus prayed and struggled with the Lord? What did he see that caused him to, to sweat and experience such physical anguish as he prayed? If not the, the vision of the coming wrath of, the, of, his, of his father on him as a sin bearer. Is it possible that Paul was considering not just his own responsibility, but what it would mean for those who are lost when, on the day when they finally face God's wrath in full for their sins and was moved by it? I think if we understood the, the magnitude, the immensity, the, the unrelentingness, while we might be tempted on the one hand to rejoice that God's justice is finally being done, it seems right, on the other hand, to look at that and, and consider the narrow escape we've had by being saved by Christ. There but for the grace of God go I. If I, if I can get a taste of that, do I want anybody else to face that? Even our enemies. What did Jesus pray on the cross while his enemies sat there and mocked him dying? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Was Jesus just being nice, 
Or does he understand the wrath of God in such a way that they, that's a horrible end to contemplate, even though it's right. He had compassion on them, even as they mocked him. How do we understand the fear of the Lord? How does the fear of the Lord affect how we view those around us who don't know him? The other, the other motivation he gives a little bit further on in the passage, verse 14, is that the love of Christ, he says, compels him. And again, I think there's a twofold meaning there. I think on the one hand, Paul's thinking of the love of Christ for himself. Um, one, of the, one of the studies I like to do with people is go through, um, there's three places in scripture where Paul has this sort of trajectory, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, of talking about himself as the, as the least or the, as one untimely born, uh, the least deserving of all the apostles, which is a remarkable statement by itself because of the apostles, Paul, I would argue, is probably the best qualified to be the chief of them. His training, his background, if you, could, if you set aside for the moment the, the wrong beliefs that he had as a Pharisee about Jesus as the Messiah, Otherwise, a person who was committed to living a life of, of holiness, of godliness, of knowing God through his word, he, he would have been, been a preeminent example of godliness among his people. But, but for, it's an important but, but, but for his seeing Jesus as a false Messiah rather than the true Messiah. But yet that, that variance on the identity of Christ was enough because it was his belief, his conviction that Jesus was not the true Messiah that led him not just to blaspheme him, to say that he was not the Messiah, but to destroy all his followers as followers of a false religion. And yet Jesus showed him mercy. Jesus called him out and spared him from destruction on the road to Damascus, but instead lifted him up, forgave him, and repurposed him for the work of spreading the good news of the gospel. And Paul never lost sight of that. He went from being the least deserving to in 1 Timothy, I think it's 1 Timothy 1, the chief of all sinners, that when I consider all that I have been forgiven of, I see myself as the foremost example to anyone who would doubt whether or not God could forgive me. Look to me. I was a blasphemer. I was completely lost, completely blind. I opposed the church. But Jesus, sa- Jesus saved me so that I might be an example to all that he can save anybody. My, that's my paraphrase, but, but I think that's the spirit of what he's saying there. Paul understood the love of Christ towards him. And, and that's part of what compelled him. But I think also with that, he understood that the love of Christ was not just for him, but the love of Christ for all the lost, the longing of Christ to redeem sinners that led to his death on the cross. Paul not just experienced the love of Christ himself, but saw the love of Christ for the lost and, and, and had that same heart, that same motivation himself. And finally, at the, the end of our passage that we're looking at today, he gives a third motivation, and that's, the desire to share in the blessings of the gospel, verse 23. I think, I think what he's saying there is something along the lines of, I, I, I'm not just motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ, but I, I want to be there. I want to be a part of this. I want, to be, I want to be part of the means of salvation of those who are lost. I want to share in the joy of people coming to know Jesus. I want to take part in that great chorus of praise to God for saving love. If you've ever served in ministry in any in any way, I think you understand what Paul's saying here. You're not, you're not 
the reason why people are saved, but you get to be the one through whom they hear the saving message of Christ, they see the love of Christ in your life, and are compelled through the Spirit, combined with that witness, to, to come to him and be spared. And that is, there's no better seat in the house but to be right there, to see God at work, to, to marvel at his grace, to marvel at his ability to transform anybody. Paul wanted that. That's, that's what motivated him. So that's, that's Paul's motivation in general. Second thing I want to kind of key in particularly on, on the, the vocabulary that Paul uses in the section, that Paul wanted to win people over to Jesus. He repeats this several times in this passage. I want to win them. I want to persuade them. And he intended to do so not, not simply by preaching and teaching, but also through developing and pursuing relationships with them. Paul would often spend many years in one place. Uh, Acts 19, we get a good example of this, beginning in verse 8. Um, he's in, I believe he's in Ephesus here. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I, I had a conception of evangelism that mapped onto something more like a sales pitch. Here's, here's the gospel. You give it to people, and if they don't respond, move on to the next person. Wipe the dust off your feet, move on. That's not how Paul functioned, though. Paul, Paul persevered for a long time, and not just in this section. I, I was reminded of this the other day when Paul, I forget which town it was, where Paul was preaching the gospel, was taken out the side the city and stoned to death. Was it Lystra, I think? Um, taken outside the city and stoned to death. That's, that's a clear closed door, I would expect. Like, they're, you're not welcome here anymore. And his response was, get up, dust himself off, go back into the city again. It wasn't, it wasn't a sales pitch. These people mattered to him. And, and I think there's, an, there's, a, there's evidence there that, that Paul's approach, Paul's desire to win people, or his, his method of winning people was not simply through preaching truth or opening things up, but sharing his life with them. And, and for that, I see more evidence in, in what he writes to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. I'm going to read a chunk here, but, but I want you to notice a couple of things in what he says here. For he never came with words of flattery. So he's recounting his, the, the beginnings of his relationship with the, the Thessalonians. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you. That's a great phrase. Being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
the image of both a mother and of a father. This is how he viewed people. Not a salesman, not a, not a teacher, not a megaphone, but, but someone who had come to love these people who did not know Christ and poured out his life and time with them, as well as preaching and teaching them, seeking to persuade them with that whole approach rather than just part that I think is, is worth considering and, and, and I think so compelling. And I, I dare say that's probably been the, the experience for some of us. That, that God didn't simply work through words spoken or words written, but through lives shared. People who took the time to put up with us, to be patient with us, to walk with us, to hear us out, to hear our objections, to, to stand in even when we want to push them away. I think that's something that maybe we're in danger of losing from time to time, but, but important as we think about things. So, so Paul's motivation first, Paul's desire to win people over to Christ, both through preaching, but also through developing relationships. And then the last point here I just want to note is that Paul was willing to go to great lengths to win people. That passage begins, and this is, this is a, a pretty startling passage when you think about all that is bound up in it. I have made myself a servant of all. I've made myself a servant of all. In the previous sections, Paul has been writing about the freedoms that he enjoyed as a Christian, as well as the particular rights he enjoyed as an apostle. He had great freedom, not to mention the freedoms that he enjoyed as a Roman citizen. Yet, at the same time, Paul recognized that if he wanted to reach people with the gospel, if he wanted to win them to Jesus, he would have to be willing to give up those rights and freedoms. Their need was greater than his. And this, he's simply following the example of Jesus. As we see in, in Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He made himself a servant to all. He set aside everything that set him apart for our sake. And then Paul not only had the mindset of being a servant to all, but then he sought to become like them, to minimize the differences. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. And Paul goes on to list four different groups who required, each of them, a somewhat different approach. All for the purpose of, and it goes, this is where I get the title of, that by all means I might save some. Notice the persistence here of Paul. Willing to do anything to exhaust himself. What he can say, what he can do that they would be able to hear and understand the gospel without obstacle, without, without anything getting in the way, even to the extent of even to the extent of having Timothy circumcised, which is fascinating because um, Paul has very strong words for those who would think that circumcision still matters. Read Galatians. He doesn't mince words there. And yet... There's a particular group of people that this was a stumbling block to them. And 
in order to minimize that difference, in order for that not to become a distraction to the gospel, he had Timothy circumcised. What lengths would we be willing to go to? Is the obvious question. But here's where, here's where the Daryl Davis story comes in. And it goes back to the title, Why I as a Black Man Attend KKK Rallies. He didn't, ask, he didn't ask this question from a distance. He understood that if he was going to get answers from or to this question, that he had to go to them. And he has just story after story. He's a wonderful storyteller. But story after story of, of reaching out, talking with these men. His, and his principle behind this, I think, is really valuable. Um, a couple of things I said. One is that I, I went to them more out of curiosity than a desire to convert them, which I, I'm still thinking about in terms of how that applies here. But I think that approach is helpful because of the other component that he, he brings into this. I, I go to them not, not affirming in any way what they do. I do not respect what they believe, but I do respect their ability and freedom to say it. And so he went to them with the, with the mindset, first of all, to let them speak, to treat them with respect, even though what they believed was contemptible. But also something that would put him at great risk, not just to them. I mean, a black man at a KKK rally is not safe. Uh, you know, um, but also puts him at risk with his own community. What are you doing there? Who are you? But he went to them in order to build these relationships and the testimonies of what effect that had on him treating them with respect is remarkable. He has, and I don't know what the number is now, but he has a closet full of robes and other paraphernalia of KKK leaders, state and national leaders, who after becoming, getting to know Daryl and, and this, these friendships forming, realize that what they believed or been taught to believe about black people was completely wrong and therefore no real reason to continue on in the KKK or as a neo-Nazi. Remarkable stories. There's, there's a, there's a story they tell us. I don't know if it's in the video itself or in another one, another talk that he gives of the, he befriended this uh, regional leader of the KKK who ended up getting married, got to know both he and his fiance. And on the day of the wedding, the, he was invited to the wedding, first of all, but on the day of the wedding, the, the, the bride's father was not able to be there. So they asked him to walk her down the aisle to give her away because he was their friend. I think there's something there for us to learn from. I think there's something closer to what Paul is, is giving us here in this passage. That's not simply a matter of technique, but really learning how to love people, to, to respect people. To, to, to try to, to create the space where they know that they are being respected and loved and not simply a sales project. And, and in the course of that, be, you know, creating the space where they in turn become more interested in what we have to say. Not, not simply because we have the truth, but because they know that we care about them. We love them. What a testimony that even if someone does not accept Christ, that they know they can consider us a friend. I think there's something there to consider. So how, how do we view the lost? We love them, or do we fear them?
Do we even know them? I mean, Daryl Davis has this saying in, in one of his talks too, that, that fear is usually the result of ignorance. So if we can deal with the ignorance, then the fear will dissipate. If we don't deal with the ignorance, fear will then lead to destruction. So, so his whole method is how do I, how do I remove ignorance? How do, how do I inform? How do I learn? How do I grow? But I think the second, second point here, just by way of application, is I think the way to reach the loss is the same way that Daryl reached the KKK. He went to them. He treated them with respect. He listened to them. And when they gave him the floor, he shared his beliefs and his convictions with them. And they heard him because he listened to them. What if Daryl's way is what Paul meant? So I, I present that to you in the hopes that, that it stirs you up at least to, to consider the story that he tells and listen to it for yourself and see what you think. But I really think that it is exemplary of what Paul's saying here. He doesn't state anywhere that I've heard specifically that he's a believer, but I, I, it, it's hard to shake the belief or hard to shake the feeling that he is. But I think this not only helps us to see that it is possible on the one hand, to, to believe very differently than the people you're reaching out to and not be compromised by their beliefs, even as you seek to love them and respect them and listen to them. Good grief, a black man at a KKK rally and in no danger of changing his beliefs. It is possible. But on the other hand, you know, addressing the fear of mastering technique or arguments isn't really necessary. Love them. Listen to them. Know what you believe, of course, but you don't need a master's course in apologetics to show respect, to, to listen well, to love people. So I, I hope, not just in, in hopefully clarifying what this passage is about, but also just as an inspiration and encouragement. The sun is out. Um, the, the restrictions are, are being lifted prime opportunity to go love our neighbors, to go seek the lost, to, to go out with, with hope and energy and joy, to really love them well, to preach the good news of the gospel and pray like crazy that the Lord would have mercy on their souls and save them. That is our work. That is our joy. Don't we want to share in that like Paul? What if we live that way? Let me close in prayer.